Our loving Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this part of Colossians gives us encouragement to be your people, to grow as your people. And we pray that we'll understand how you're at work in us and among us and that that will motivate us to be thankful and to change. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what we're going to be looking at today really is the key to living and growing as a Christian. Uh, This is the key to living and growing as a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, uh, I hope that you might pick up along the way uh, how you actually become a Christian, what being a Christian is all about. But if you are a Christian, this passage points you to the key to living and growing. And I think that's pretty important. I imagine that most of us, uh, from time to time, take a look at our lives and we are disappointed. We're frustrated. We think, I wish I could change more. I wish that I was a different person. I wish that I could overcome this area of sin. Or I just wish that I could feel these things with a little bit more enthusiasm. Maybe a little bit more gratitude. Maybe things would be different. Well, I don't know about you, but I fall temptation to self-help remedies when it comes to trying to live the Christian life. And one of the things that we were looking at last week, and I'm sure if you remember nothing else from last week, you remember coffee. All right, But what was coffee all about? Well, coffee had to be straight up as a metaphor for Jesus without anything else. But one of the things that we saw when we looked at this picture in chapter 2 was that people tried to add things to Jesus, not so much as to get right with God, but as a strategy for growing as Christians. And what we saw was it doesn't work. I'll give you a little taste of it to go back to the end of chapter 2. He says this, uh, You hear these kinds of rules, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. And such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So what we saw last week in chapter 2, Paul was saying that if you want to work out how to grow as a Christian, if you want to understand how to get rid of sin in your life, it's not this way. It's not by adding in a new set of rules. It's not by following a new religious ritual. It's not by some kind of extra philosophy or clever teaching that you will work out how to live and grow as a believer in Christ, but there's another way. And I want to encourage us as we look at chapter 3 just to see how much better is the other way. Because I fall prey to those kinds of methods, and I imagine that some of us do as well. How often do we measure how we feel we're going and growing as Christians by how well we're going about reading our Bible? or how regularly we pray and how much time we devote to it, or whether we've been turning up to church on a regular basis or spasmodic, or other measures, other rules, other rituals that fill our lives, and we think, yeah, I'm doing pretty well because I can tick off these things. In fact, I do a little bit of Christian mentoring uh, a couple of weeks uh, during each month for a couple of days. I meet together with pastors in different parts of the country. And as we've talked together over Zoom, there are a number of times 
when I've asked them just to reflect on how they are going as a Christian. I mean, they're Christian pastors, but before they're a Christian pastor, they're a Christian person. And from time to time, I've asked them how they think they're going. And there's been one or two occasions where someone said, yeah, I'm doing pretty well. I say, how's that? What's that look like? And they'll talk about how they've been reading their Bible, they've been getting up early, they've, they've had encouraging conversations, they've been active in sharing their faith, they've been doing a whole range of different things. Church is going well, there's good vibes, maybe marriage is feeling good, maybe they're getting on well with others around about them and things just seem to be so good that they're going well as a Christian. And then I say, can I just reflect something back to you? They say, yeah, what's that? And I say, you gave me a list of things that you've been doing. You give me a list of things that you've been experiencing. And you haven't said to me anything about Jesus. And of course, they gulp. And then they realise that they're measuring their Christian life by the things that they do. Now, I point to that not to pick on those people, but to say, I think that that's what I'm like, and that's probably what you're like at times. Well, Paul has another way, and it's not the way of rules and rituals and self-help strategies, which, of course, have sometimes an outcome. Sometimes they're good, and they last for a little while, but like a New Year's resolution, are quickly forgotten. But he has a better approach, and we pick it up at the beginning of chapter 3. He says then, and we'll read the first four verses, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now notice here that he's talking about setting their minds, or us, if we were receiving this letter directly, us setting our minds on Christ, setting our minds, setting our hearts on Christ, on the things above. And what he does is he reminds them of two things that have happened. Happened to Christ and therefore happened to those who put their trust in Christ. And he points backwards to the death of Jesus and to the resurrection of Jesus. Two foundational events. Two physical, historical events. Two things that were actually documented that took place. Of course, this church here is marked with these two banners. He died so that we might live. He has risen. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. That is Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And what Paul does is reminds them that they have died and that they have been raised. You see, when Christ died and rose, all those who put their trust in Jesus also died and rose. Our penalty for sin was paid for through Jesus. So there's a sense in which we can look back to 30 or thereabouts AD outside Jerusalem, look up at the one hanging on a cross and see ourselves as dying there. Our death is being paid in our place. Jesus is substituting for us. He's paying the penalty for our sin. And we can reckon on that. That has happened. We have died with Christ. But not only did Jesus die, he rose. He rose again 
on that third day. Victory over sin and death and the devil. Confirmation that the sin that was being punished was not Jesus' sin, it was yours and mine. And the victorious innocent one is raised to rule over everything. And so Paul is saying, what these Christians are to do is to set their mind on the things above. Why? Because they've died with Christ and they have been raised with Christ. So our minds and our hearts, our very essence is tied up with Christ. And what he's saying is we need to reckon this for ourselves. In other words, it's fundamental to our identity. Do we see ourselves as those who have died and risen in Christ? Of course, we don't see that completely, do we? It says in verse uh, 3, therefore you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There's a reality that we have died and risen in Christ, but we're not yet experiencing all that that will mean in all of its beauty and perfection for eternity. It's now hidden and we don't yet see that being fully worked out, but it's nonetheless true. It's a fact. It's who we are. It's our identity. And I take it what Paul's saying in this first paragraph is since we have been raised with Christ, let us set our hearts on Christ. Since we have died with Christ, let's set our hearts and our minds on Christ. In other words, reckon that's who we are. It's hidden now, but it will one day be revealed. So we've got to get our identity clear. If we understand who we are, then there's a lot that flows from this. And the big thing, I think, for the Colossians is that they need to realise that whilst they live in Colossae, their ultimate home is not in Colossae, it's in heaven. And whilst you and I might live in Bonnie Hills or Port Macquarie, Lake Cadai or Lauren or Dunbogan or some other place, even Sydney, that is not ultimately our home. If we're in Christ, then we belong somewhere else and we're heading there. And what he's saying is we need to factor in where we live. And it's not our postcode here and now. And if we understand where we truly belong, where we're headed, and how we've got there, then it's going to make a difference to who we are and how we see ourselves and how we think and how we speak and how we act, because that's where we belong. Let's see how this works itself out in the next paragraph. And you'll see the next two paragraphs flow from this. How do you know? Well, in verse 5, put to death, therefore... And down in verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen. This is the outworking of being in Christ, trusting in his death and his resurrection. Therefore, because we have died with Christ, put to death, verse 5, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, we need to realise that what he says here is absolutely full on. Uh, when he says here, put to death, he's not just saying, don't dabble in these things. He's not saying, don't pay too much attention to this stuff. He's not saying, look, you might like to choose not to do this. He says, murder it. Kill it. Stab it. Decapitate it. Asphyxiate it. Kill it. You hear what he's saying? In other words, don't let it live. You're in a fight, and it's a fight to the death, and there'll only be one who comes out alive. Make sure it's you. 
It's strong language that he's using here. And we need to see that these things that he talks about, and there's two lists. The first list includes sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. They're primarily sexual things in their nature. But they're tied up with wanting something that is not ours. And that, I think, is why greed is at the end of that. Wanting things that that aren't rightly ours. And those desires can grip us and take hold of us and redirect us and shape us and drag us down. And they are the very things that have damaged our lives and that we delight in that cause Jesus to go to the cross on our behalf. Jesus has died with those things, so put them to death. Don't let them rise up again. Kill them. Grab them by the neck and asphyxiate them. Don't let them take hold of you. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature and kill it. And he continues in verse 7, You used to walk in these ways, in the life that you once lived, but now you must rid yourself. So put to death this and rid yourself of this, of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its Creator. So he's saying, don't, don't play with this stuff. Don't mess around with it. It's part of your old nature, part of your earthly self. It's the reason that Christ came to die. Don't let your temper get a hold of you. Don't let your language destroy you and destroy others. Don't let your mouth get you into trouble. See, Jesus is saying here that these things are the things that belong to the old self. And they reveal what's in our heart. The anger, the rage, the the malice, the harm that we might want to cause to others. The angry words, the yelling and carrying on and and criticising. See, these are the things that show that we're focused primarily not on Christ, but on ourselves. Why do you think he says in verse 11, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Almost seems like he's accidentally copied and pasted the wrong sentence, doesn't it? What he said about angry words and immorality and lust. How does it go with there being no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, all of these different things? Friends, I think he's making the point that we are who we are in fellowship with others. That that is, if we recognise that we are in Christ, then we've been bought by Christ and placed in community. We are not at the centre of all things anymore. Jesus is. And we are people who have been forgiven by Jesus so that we might forgive others. We'll see more of that in the next paragraph here. But let's have a little bit of a think about this. What are the things that we think will satisfy us? What are the things that we think will make us feel good? 
See, isn't the temptation to sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, isn't that because we think we'll be better off if we have something, someone, some experience or, or some sensory thing that will make us feel better, that, that we'll be better off with these things than we will be with God? And, and where does anger and rage and malice and slander come from? Well, it, it comes from a heart that believes that it's the most important thing. A person who believes that they matter more than those around about them. And the filthy language and the lying. That is a belief that I'll be better off if I do things my way rather than following God's way. And Paul's reminding them that now they are no longer separated from Christ. They're now in relationship with him and not only on their own but with one another. That is, we belong together. And won't we treat each other differently if we realise who each other is? See, when I get angry with somebody, when I lose my temper at another person, if that person is Christian, then I've forgotten something fundamental about them, and that is that somebody is loved by Christ. And I'm in community with that person. And there's nothing that should separate us because Jesus has broken down the barrier. And so he continues in verse 12, another therefore, basically remember who you are. Therefore, as God's chosen people, corporate language notice, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and respect and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, Put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. In this, this section here, I think, again, he's saying, therefore, remember who you are and clothe yourselves appropriately. You've been brought into community. We've, we've been given to each other in relationship together. We've been brought into a special relationship, God's chosen holy people. That's the language that God gave Israel when he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And that's the language that he gives his people as we come to Christ and are rescued from sin and death. We are his chosen people. We're his holy people. We're set apart to be not like our old self, not like the world around about us, but to be like Christ. We've been brought into a new community that might reflect Christ. He says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiving and putting on love. Who sounds like that? Christ. He's saying put on Christ. You've been brought into Christ, so clothe yourself with Christ. And what a contrast. Back there in terms of sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires, greed, that's wanting what doesn't belong to us. That's actually treating other people as objects. And here we are to treat one another with compassion and kindness and love. And that comes from and flows from understanding who we are in Christ. That is, we are loved by Christ that we might love one another. We're to put on the family likeness, if you like. And what is the family likeness or uniform? It's forgiveness. You can see it there in verse 
4 to 13. Bear with one another and forgive each other, just as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I mean, this is a beautiful picture. We're to clothe ourselves with an attitude of forgiveness, of gentleness, of kindness, of patience, of compassion. We're to put others before ourselves. We are to see that that's how God treated us and we are to treat others likewise. The other night, Fiona and I sat down to watch a movie. I wasn't quite sure whether it was going to be a comedy or, or what it was going to be. It's called Pay It Forward. Uh, you might have seen it. It's, it's quite a moving uh, story on Netflix. And, of course, you're familiar with the concept, aren't you? Someone does you good and you pay it forward. And, and the idea is that you never know just how many chain reactions there are as to the good that can be done just by deliberately receiving good and then paying it forward to somebody else. Well, it's a good picture in a way of what God is calling us to in Christ. He's calling us to pay it forward. We've been forgiven everything. Everything. So let's pay it forward and forgive others. And if we want to see what that looks like, Jesus tells the story. Remember that parable? I think it's Matthew 18. He says that there was a guy who was forgiven squillions of dollars and he could never pay it back. And, and then he remembered that someone owed him a few bucks. And he went and asked for that and the guy couldn't pay it back, so he put it into prison until he could pay it. And, and the people listening to Jesus' story say that's absolutely appalling behaviour. And of course the sting is in the tail because that's what we're like. Every time we fail to forgive somebody who sins against us, we are demonstrating that we've forgotten just how much we've been forgiven by Christ. It is a, it's a recipe of squillions. That's a lot, by the way, if, you, if you're unfamiliar. Compared with something which is really quite petty and finite. We are to pay it forward. We've been forgiven much. Therefore, let us be people who forgive. It's interesting, isn't it, there? You get the idea of forgiveness in these words of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience and bearing with one another. And then you get forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave. He's making the point again and again and again. Love is spelled F-O-R-G-I-V-E. And so, there's, in the original, there's an and in, at the beginning of verse 15. He's continuing his point. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another, with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There are three things there, three foci on Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. And whatever you do, 
do it all in the name of Christ. So we are to be people who let Christ's peace rule in our, in our thinking, in our, in our um, very being. We are to let the message of Christ or the word of Christ dwell among us together. And we are to let the, the name of Christ or the reputation, the honour of Christ, shape everything that we do. Christ at the centre. We are to be all about Jesus Christ. Our hearts, well, we're called to an attitude of peace. Peace in contrast very much to the anger and malice and fighting and lying and failing to forgive that we see in the paragraphs before. Peace. Christ has come to bring peace. Peace is to rule in our hearts since as members of one body we were called to peace. It's not just a, a, a private peace experience that he's talking about. He's talking about keeping the peace in relationship with others because that's what Jesus does for us. We are to do that with each other. Similarly, let the message of Christ dwell among us richly as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So different to anger and rage and malice and lying. We are to build each other up. We are to encourage each other. We are to show patience and forbearance and kindness to each other. We are to sing and to speak and to converse with each other in a way that will spur us on to love and to serve Jesus. That's what we're being called to. And everything, everything here is to flow from knowing Jesus, that we might honour Jesus in our words, in our thoughts and in our actions. Friends, I want to ask us, are we letting Christ work in us and among us? Are we soaking ourselves in the word of Christ? It's the key to the Christian life. That's pretty surprising, isn't it? That the key to the Christian life might be Christ. And yet so easily we look for it in other places. If I can follow this program, if I can be this disciplined, if I can develop these habits, if, if I can have this kind of approach to things. But no, the key to the Christian life is Christ. It's to soak ourselves in Christ. It's to remember Christ. It's to know Christ. It's to let Christ's word dwell in us richly. It's to have our hearts and our minds shaped by Christ. It's to encourage and spur on and teach and encourage each other with Christ. What do we need from each other? We need more of Christ. What do we have to encourage each other with? More of Christ. That's the picture that we have here. And so friends, I take this as a passage which helps us to know how to live and to grow as Christians. And it's not a new fad. It's not the latest discipleship program. It's not the kind of thing that gets discovered by some church or some group or some pastor or some author and revolutionises the Christian world. It actually goes very back to the beginning and it's found in Christ. And it comes from remembering that we are in Christ, that as we put our trust in Jesus, 
we are connected to both his death and to his resurrection. And that that secures our future in Jesus for all eternity. That we are united with Christ in the heavenly realms. And that one day we will experience all of that. And we are brought into relationship with other people who are in Christ. Who are looking forward to the same future. So we're part of a community of people for whom Christ has shaped and changed our lives. And for whom Christ is to be central to our life together. That's the picture that we have here. It's not our doing. It's not what we get better at. It's not us turning over a leaf. It's not our personal improvement. It's not our effort. It's not our achievement. It's, it's actually Christ's doing. And I take it the picture that we've got here in this passage is profoundly important. And that is, in its essence, it's saying, don't forget where you belong. If you've come to Christ, then you belong in Christ. And you'll belong in Christ for all eternity. And what a pleasure and a privilege that will be. And that's who we are. That's our very essence. And look around at each other. For those of you who put your trust in Jesus, that's who you are. And we are here with each other, belonging not only to Christ, but belonging to each other. And we're here for each other. And I take it we are not to forget who we are and where we belong, and therefore to be thankful. Now let me, let me just show you something in the passage here. Verse 16. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. What's the focus there? It's Christ. It's on the peace of Christ that calls us to be peaceful. And the next thing, and be thankful. So when you focus on Christ, it leads you to be thankful. Let's look at the next verse. And let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God. See, here is the message of Christ, which is to shape our singing, shape our talking, shape our preaching, shape our studies, shape our conversations. It's the message of Christ for our edification, our encouragement and our perseverance. It's about Christ, this message. And it is to be sung with gratitude in your hearts. You see, once we realise what Christ has done, it leads to thanks, it leads to gratitude. And finally, verse 17, whatever you do, okay, so I haven't gathered it up in the things he said beforehand, anything else you might want to think of by way of illustration, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. You see, here's the key to the Christian life and to growth in the Christian life is to remember Christ and be ever so thankful. Gratitude is the key to avoiding selfishness. Selfishness that expresses itself in hate, in anger, in lies, in deceit, in aggression, in lust. Gratitude in Christ is the key to the Christian life. How about we thank God for that?